everybody. Welcome to the Write or Die show. I'm your host, Randy Lee Bosla. On the show, we interview other writers and we talk about mental health from their personal journeys. If you have not already hit that like and subscribe button, go ahead, do that now so that you never miss an episode. Hello, everybody. So I am very excited today to have with us Steve Wilson. Hello. Hi, Randy. How you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? Thank you. Excellent. So where are you joining us from right now? Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, how's the weather? Hot. <laughs> it was 116 mm. yesterday. Oh, that sounds really hot. I don't know what that yeah. is in I don't know what that is in Celsius, um, but it sounds really, really hot and ridiculous. It is. Whew. All right. So tell us a little bit about who Steve Wilson is. Okay. Uh, I'm 74, married for 51 years, three daughters, two granddaughters. Uh, I am retired. I was in the custom clothing business for quite a while. Uh, we live, as I said, in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 1978. So how did that happen? Because, I mean, just take us, take us, take us way back to 1978 and maybe, maybe prior to, so we have a little background info. Okay, um, cool. Well, and how, how did that happen? Uh, I was just a normal kid up till nine years old. And then I went to the movies one day and a guy got me out of line, took me in the restroom and sexually assaulted me. Um, I guess that's what precipitated it. Um, I went into my first depressive episode about six months later, uh, I felt worthless. Nobody loved me. I could care less about anybody else. It was awful. And I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what had happened to me a few months prior. Uh, I thought it was my fault. Um, I didn't tell anybody for 30 years. I kept it inside. And... I guess that's what resulted in my bipolar or, but the fact is no psychiatrist therapist can tell you for sure why you're depressive or why you have bipolar disorder. Um, bipolar seems to come and go. Uh, you have a cycle and uh, my cycle luckily was one that was a uh, long time between episodes. Okay. So after I got over my first episode, when I was in uh, elementary school, I didn't have another one until uh, really ninth grade. Okay. Um, okay. So a couple things to unpack there. First off, so many people think it's their fault when that happens. Mm -hmm. So many people. So I just, I always like to say to the audience when this topic comes up is it's not your fault. And when you are ready, then talk about it. Don't, you know, can't force it because it is pretty traumatic experience. But 
when you are ready, talk about it because it is not your fault at all. Got to lay that out there first. Next, um, that's so young to experience your first episode. Um, I know nowadays, anyways, they're always, at least where I am, they're always so worried to make any kind of diagnosis at an early age. They often wait until they're much older, especially for like a bipolar um, diagnosis. They didn't make the diagnosis. The first diagnosis they gave me was in 1970, and they said I was clinically depressed. Well, okay. And how old were you in 1970? I was 22. Okay. Yeah, so that makes sense around the like time that they tend to make them. They yeah, don't they like to get the, the kids. average age for the onset of uh, bipolar is twenty five. Okay, uh, that's when I was at my worst. Twenty twenty to twenty eight, nine, thirty, something like that. But they misdiagnosed me. That happens so much. Which there were very few back then. Didn't work. They made me sick. Oh, so, so what did they first diagnose you with? Clinical depression. Right. Okay. So they started with that one. But um, for those that don't know what bipolar is, I'm going to quickly read the definition for you from the Mayo Clinic. Um, formerly called manic depression, which is probably why that's what they went with first. It's a mental health condition that causes extreme mood swings that include emotional highs, mania or hypomania, and lows, depression. And that's a big difference between bipolar and depression is you're going to have the cycles of up and down. You're not just constantly down like when we're depressed. Correct. So for from 1970 until 1978, I really was bad because nothing would work. I went into the hospital for three weeks. Um. And then in 1978, my psychiatrist came in and said, you know, I think I made a mistake. <laughs> bipolar. And I went, what the hell is bipolar? Never heard of it. Right. Yep. Uh, I, I don't know who did know it except for people in the medical field. Um, but they gave me lithium right away and it made a big difference. Now, it didn't make me perfect or even close to perfect. Yeah, nobody's perfect. I, Made me a lot better. So that's when my life started to turn around, although it took another 22 years before I got another medication, Paxil, that uh, made me a lot better. Because most of the time in those 22 years, I spent ruminating, worrying about everything I'd done, if I hurt anybody, if I'd made a mistake. Um that was uh, bad in my mind. But yes. Usually oh, not. I hate ruminating. I do it all the time. A lot when I'm falling asleep. It's great to fall asleep when you're ruminating and making yourself feel like crap right before you fall asleep. Um, sarcasm, <laughs> people, sarcasm. Um, but I totally understand that because I, I ruminate a lot on things that I mean, it might have even happened 10 years ago and people have don't even remember it except me. And my memory of it might not be exactly what happened because I always make myself out to be the stupid person or the, you know, I did something wrong kind of thing, even if nobody else saw it that way. Well, 
what I did was I had a woman I dated for several months and I thought I was in love and it all fell apart in 1970. Okay. And for all those years until about four years ago, I still couldn't get her off my mind. Wow. And it just drove me crazy. And as I said, about four years ago, I couldn't stop thinking about that. So I went to a trauma therapist. Yeah. And we went all the way back through my life, starting uh, with the uh, sexual assault. And when I was all done with that, bringing it up to uh, the, the time that I was doing the trauma therapy, I got over it. Uh, trauma therapy is great. Yeah, it really is. It <laughs> makes a hell of a difference. And I would uh, advise anybody to, to do it if they're needing it. Yes, definitely. I always, whenever I'm on other people's shows and they ask me, oh, what's one of your best tips? I'm like, therapy. But <laughs> trauma therapy specifically would probably help me the most. And it's the one I did last. I did all these other things first. And then they're <laughs> like, oh, let's maybe talk about this. Because you know what? I think maybe you got PTSD. I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's, um, you know, I have a lot of people. Okay, let's go back. Um in, I had a clothing store that was in my family, and I was running it sometime about late 1980s. And every Christmas, we would hire uh, young ladies, high school age, junior high school, to wrap packages and run errands for us because we were very busy at Christmas time. Yes. One year, we hired this young lady. She was perfect, bubbly, had a great uh, countenance, countenance about herself, and I thought she was going to do really well in life. One Saturday morning, her best friend came in, and she was crying and sobbing, and she said the little girl had taken a gun the night before and shot herself in the head. That was my really first exposure to uh, suicide. And then a little bit after that, a friend of mine from college called me and said his son had been depressed and was uh, breaking into houses and might have been on drugs. And he got caught breaking into houses. My my buddy was very prominent in the, the city he lived in. So the cops called him and said, come down and get your son. And the son got out of the back of the squad car, pulled a gun, said, mom and dad, I love you, but I can't take it anymore. Shot himself in the head. That is hard. So that was my first experience with what I became, what I had become very close to in the 1970s, which was taking my own life, although I never tried. So I decided to, I was feeling pretty good at that time. And I decided to start talking to, uh, to high school classes in psychology and health about okay. depression. Yes. And remember today, 
we talk about how depressed our young people are. Well, this was 1988, and I saw they were just about as depressed back then. Yeah, depression is not a new phenomenon. I think what's new is the amount of people talking about it and the fact that we have social media, so it's a lot easier to hear about it from other areas. Well, what I found out was, and it really opened my mind, uh, I would have the kids come up after my talk, and if they wanted to bring up anything, they could. And one day, this really attractive, probably a senior in high school came up, and she was one of the top students in the school and a great athlete. And she came up to me and she says, I don't know what to do. There's so much pressure on me to excel that I'm at the bottom of the barrel. My parents demand that I get straight A's. They demand that I get into a top college and I just can't do it. I'm, I'm beat up. One of the next little girls came through and she said, I want to die. Nobody likes me. I have no friends. My parents don't like me. I want to run away and never come back. So these were the moments that I thought I would go out and uh, continue on working with primarily young people. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was finding out. It's in my research, 20% uh, of the people in America are have some kind of mental illness. That's yeah. millions of people. Millions. Yeah. Same statistics here in Canada. One in five, so that's 20%. Um, and unfortunately, you, you said that the, there's more people talking about it problem is nobody from the government or, or the, the medical field or the insurance companies are doing a lot about it. Yeah. Um, when I came out, we moved to Scottsdale 15 years ago and we came out and I wanted to continue talking to high schools. Yep. Well, they wouldn't have me because I was too old. What? They said, they said if you're going to be a Peer to these kids, you got to be 35 or under. Oh, my gosh. Um, I think it's super interesting to hear that in the past, there was the same types of experiences as we have now. Because so many people think it's a now problem. Yeah. It's not a now problem. It's always been a problem. Like I said, it's just more on social media. I'm not going to say the news per se, because that... It gets very political at times, but on social media, people are talking about it more. And so I think it's just a more known problem as opposed to before. That's just my opinion. Yeah. Well, you know, in my opinion, um, although we're getting to know a lot more about it, we got a hell of a long way to go. Oh, uh, for sure. So when I, when I came out here and found out I couldn't, uh, do the classes I wanted to do, uh, I joined a company that 
has uh, mental health support groups. And I went through the testing and they selected me as a facilitator. So I now facilitate and have for the last eight years uh, two mental health support groups here in Phoenix. Oh, very cool. So maybe blessing in disguise, perhaps? Yes, because this is this is much more hands-on, closer, get into the real root of the problems. And I do it, as I said, twice a week. I can handle about 15 people a session, a two-hour session, because I go around and let each one of them speak and talk about their problems. Some people talk about how great things are going for them, but they forget that when they got on five minutes ago, they said, uh, oh, I'm great today, but yesterday I was down in the dumpsters. Yes. So many people don't want to bring up what's going on. It's hard to do it. Yes. Yeah. But in my groups, if they continue to come back, uh, they eventually talk about what's happening to them. I think it's a lot of comfort level, right? It's hard yeah. to share that kind of thing. I remember when I first started with um, my therapist, the first probably two sessions were very superficial because <laughs> I didn't know her well enough. I didn't trust her enough yeah. to go deep into what it was that I wanted to talk about because it's scary to talk to somebody you don't know about it. And there are 14 or 15 people staring back at you. Right? Yeah. Um, but what I found is, um, first of all, I don't know what the percentage of people is in my groups, but I would say around 20% will come and tell us about how they were abused sexually or physically when they were a kid. More often than not, by a parent or a sibling, or an uncle, or a friend of the family, yeah. and they do the same thing. They don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the reasons for not telling anybody is that most people will support the parents, and the kid has no standing, so yeah. they just shut up about it, and yeah. it really turns their lives upside down. Yeah. And like you had mentioned earlier, they feel like it's their fault, too. So yes. why why would you want to bring attention to something that you're at fault for? Which, again, you're totally not. But that's the the mindset, right? And yes. actually, my so my grandson, he's three. And he, he likes watching the, the YouTube. Um, there's different, like, songs and stuff on there. And the one song is Stranger Danger. Um, you know, don't go up to a stranger because you don't know them. Which is a good message. But at the same time, statistically speaking, you are more likely to be sexually assaulted, to be murdered, to whatever, by somebody that you know. Yes. So, I mean, I don't want him to be scared of, you know, his family per se, but I just found it really funny that this song is all about stranger danger, stranger danger, when statistically speaking, it, it is somebody close to you, somebody that you know that does end up hurting you more than a stranger does. And when you're a young child, stranger danger means almost nothing to you. Yeah. Well, he's a nice guy. I'll, I'll talk to him and bam, the next thing you know, you're in trouble. Yeah. 
that's what happened to me. And uh, at nine year old, nine years old, I had no idea that kind of stuff could happen. Right. So um, in my uh, groups, I have discovered that many, many millions of people fall through the cracks, not only here in the U.S. and Canada, but all over the world. Definitely. I've talked to lots of people from all over. Yeah, they can't get the help they need because they can't afford to pay the price Mm -hmm. or insurance won't cover anything. And this is one of the tragedies of this country and others is that they don't, in the government uh, and in the power people, mental health problems are not important to them. They need to get elected. So they just don't pay any attention. The insurance companies do whatever the hell they want. The drug companies tell or charge uh, astronomical prices, and many people can't get coverage. Yeah, many we don't have do um, we don't have the exact same problem. Like very similar. We but we have access. I would say we have better access to the medication side of things. Um, however, the problem is that medication can, is a band aid to the underlying issues. So here, um, a family doctor might prescribe something. Like my family doctor had no problem prescribing me my antidepressants, which totally need still take. They work. However, he couldn't help me do anything as far as the therapy side of it. And our insurance only covers, it worked out to, at that time, two and a half sessions of therapy. Wow, that's so much. (laughs) Insurance coverage here is very bad for mental health. The most I've seen um, in the various works that my husband and I have had with our insurance companies, $500. And so that does not go very far when you're talking to an actual psychotherapist. Um, Social workers do tend to cost less, but still that's not very many sessions at all. So in Canada, I think our problem is we like to band-aid. We love to push the medication side because that is cheap here. Um, But the underlying issues don't get dealt with. So it really is not fixing the problem at all. We've got another problem in the U.S. And I understand from reading that it is all over. uh, The pool of psychiatrists and therapists is dropping. They can't make any money. Because nobody can afford them. My... Trauma therapist was $200 for 50 minutes. Yep. And luckily, I'm well off enough that I could afford it. But most of these people fall through the cracks. And the only outlet is clinics. Yeah. And they go to these clinics and they're in distress. And they get an appointment. And then the psychologist says, okay, we'll see you in a month. Who the hell knows what's going to happen to that person in a month? Right. Yeah. And so it's it's just a bad, bad way that everybody who thinks they aren't suffering from any kind of mental issue uh, treats those of us who are. Uh, You have a heart attack, man, the team is there to fix you right now. Oh, when I had cancer, they were 
right there take that out good to go right but when i want to kill myself it's like hey we'll keep you in the hospital a couple days and bye Um, (laughs) and don't change all your medications and that takes a month to get over and it's a real clown show it is and then there's if you can't afford it um here there is like you said there are some clinics or some free routes you can go but the wait list for them is so long that who, like you said, who knows what's going to be happening to you by the time you go, okay, I need the help to the wait list. And then finally get to maybe see somebody down the line. If you're lucky enough. I didn't know it was that bad in Canada. That's just the same here in the U S. Yep. So many guests that I have think Canada has a fabulous healthcare system. Um, we really don't. <laughs> um, from the mental health th- side to the chronic pain side, I have experienced a lot of things and we really, unless you are dying. So like I said, when I had cancer, uh, my uncle just had an appendectomy and, you know, right on it. So they are good when you are dying. <laughs> well, However, I, if you're I not. Had a, I had a podcast with a guy in uh, Britain. And I thought he had the greatest uh, healthcare system. He says, oh, no. Six months to see a specialist or a therapist. And uh, he said, it's just not good. It's good if you're wealthy or have at least a a decent income. But anybody else might as well go out and talk to themselves all the time. Right. Yeah. So the mental health side, if you can afford therapy, you're good here. Um, but if you're looking for something else, like a specialist for a doctor, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, you are on that same wait list and there are not enough doctors and not enough specialists to make those wait lists move very quickly. Yeah. It's, it's, and still the stigma against mental health yes. uh, goes far beyond the government and what they're doing to help people. Normal people think you can just uh, go take a walk and get over it, or they'll tell you, oh, my God, you have a great family, you have a great wife, Mm -hmm. you have no reason to be down in the dumps. Yeah. And all that does is sink you down further. Exactly, right? Oh, you're telling me I shouldn't feel this way, but so now I'm mad at myself for feeling the way that I'm feeling. So on top of feeling bad, now I'm mad that I'm bad. And it's just, oh my goodness, it's such a bad cycle. And actually you bring up a good point. Um, So I'm, I'm throwing up the definition here from the Mayo Clinic of depression. Mood disorder that causes a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest. It affects how you feel, think and behave. This is the key here from the Mayo Clinic. More than a bout of the blues and you can't snap out of it. I did not paraphrase that. That is their words. You can't snap out of it. So, you know, I have tons of guests that always say that, but maybe people will believe me if I show them from like an actual big organization that does all this research and does all that stuff that it is not a matter of, oh, I feel better. Thanks. (laughs) And I have the Mayo Clinic out here in Phoenix and I go to it for other reasons and I know that for psychology, you can't get in there uh, on a moment's notice. I mean, no matter how good the Mayo Clinic is, uh, they've still got some problems when it comes to mental health. And I'm not saying that we have all the answers. By no means do we have maybe any answers. But we do know what the problems are. Yeah. So maybe somebody listening somewhere can come up with 
something that'll help. But that is the reason that I do this show, that I write the books that I write, that you've written the book that you've written, and we're going to get to that very shortly, because it's so important that those of us that have a voice and are able to use it to talk about it, it's so important that we do. Because I remember, and I mean, you're talking about the 70s and people didn't talk about it. Well, even in the 90s, people didn't talk about it. Early 2000s, people didn't talk about it. It really didn't become a thing to talk about. And so I'm going to say the last decade or last five yeah, years even. Because sure. um, when I was going through depression in the early 2000s, I didn't even know what the word was. I didn't know it was depressed. I thought everybody hated themselves and wanted to kill themselves. <laughs> I don't know. Apparently, that's not the case. <laughs> but when we don't talk about it, we don't know. And yeah. that is why it's so important to talk about it. Like in... You know, uh, I talk to a, a lot of people in my groups, and they tell me that, uh, oh, I can't get out of bed. I can't take a shower. I can't brush my teeth. Uh, it's just too damn hard. Well, I was fortunate never going through that except for a small way with the sleeping. But, you know, it really wrecks your whole life. Yeah. And... When I was going through it, uh, at the worst, between 19, er, Jesus, 1960, 1960 and, uh, and 1980, uh, I told no one. I put on this mask. I was the clown of the class. Uh, everything was great. And then I'd crash. Yep. Yeah, I totally hear you on that. And it is definitely a common theme that guests talk about. Yes, yes. You just put on that smiling face, do what you got to do, then go home and think about offing yourself. Yeah, I would sit in front of the TV for hours. I didn't do any homework. How the hell I graduated from high school, I'll never know. Uh, I just didn't attend class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I cheated it. <laughs> oh geez yeah no my I I hated life so much that getting out of the house and going to school was just didn't make sense to do I just I couldn't do it and I remember the first time I skipped so in grade nine I skipped so I left the house pretended like I was going to school waited for my mom to go to work and then I just went back home and the school had called my mom and she was freaking out because she didn't know where I was um she found out I was at home um, and she said, you know what, if you're not going to go to school, fine. Two rules. One, you cannot fail because then your ass needs to go to school. Number two, you stay home because I need to know where you are. I was like, oh, all right, I can do that. <laughs> so um, I stayed home. That's a good I little mother. Um, well, she had she had to do something because with my brother, um, he just stopped going to school entirely, complete dropout. So what was her choice? To fight with me, which she really couldn't do. Like when, when they get to a certain age and a certain, you know, height and weight or whatever, you can't pick them up and force them to go. Yeah. Sure. Um, and so it was the best that she could do. And it worked out really well for me because I did all my work. I passed all of my things. Um, I definitely didn't put in 
as much effort as I could have, but I always passed everything. I graduated. She made me go to my graduation because my brother never did. Um, and then uh, I did end up going to college and college was a completely different experience. Absolutely loved all of my classes. I attended them, you know, religiously. I top of my class graduated, absolutely loved everything about it. So, you know, there's different experiences out there for different schools and you got to figure out what's going to work for you. You know, I had kind of a similar experience. As I said, I cheated to get through in high school. And when I somehow got into a college, things changed. Now, I still had depressive episodes and mm -hmm. problems. But I felt a sort of freedom. And I guess it was because a new life. I went to school in Florida which was oh, nice. 1,500 miles away. So I didn't have all of that contact with the things that uh, tore me apart when I was there. So I understand how going away and being on your own can make a big difference. Yeah. And I think for college too, you kind of get to pick what you want to do, right? Like you can see why you're doing the courses that you're doing. Um, it's something that you tend to be interested in. You're not taking, you know, physics. <laughs> I was forced to take science and I'm like, I hate science. And now I, I couldn't tell you anything about the periodic table other than it's called the periodic table. I don't remember. <laughs> it means nothing to me anymore, right? So um, it is a totally different experience. And that's what I'm telling my kid right now. He's going into grade 12, school starts next week. Um, and we just visited the local college here because I actually, there's a college and a university in the region that I live. Um, and so we just visited it because he wants to do baking, baking and uh, pastry, fine arts or whatever it's called. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. So we checked out the school. It was, it's the same school I went to, but a different campus. So I was like, well, this is cool. I haven't been to this campus before. And it all looks very neat. And he's excited to go. But it's the same thing with me. He hates high school. He does not attend physically in class. He does all of his work at home and it is completed. His grades are decent, but he's looking forward to going to college. And hopefully it will be kind of the same as me where it's exciting to go there because he's picking what he wants to do. He's going to meet different people. He's not going to be stuck with those same kids that he's known forever that picked on him. And, you know, it's, it's totally different. I agree totally. At least it was for us. Now yes. it's not for everybody. No, of course not. But you know, don't don't count it out. I guess yeah. is what I don't want the audience to know. It helps a lot of people. Yeah, don't count it out. I've heard a lot of stories that are very similar to ours, um, and don't think that you know what you feel in this moment is what you're always going to feel. Yeah, that is so, true. Now, one thing that I talk about in my groups is that sorry to tell you guys but you're in for a long journey <laughs> there is no cure for bipolar mm -hmm. and if you don't follow the instructions of your therapist if you've got one and don't take your medication you're going to be in for some tough times yeah. And even if you do do all the things that you should do, you're still going to be in for some tough times, but you can come out on the other end in good shape. Uh, that's what happened to me. And that's what I believe can happen to everybody. But what we've talked about with the uh, 
limitations of them being able to get good health care, it makes it real tough. It does. And then you put into the fact that uh, people who are mentally ill believe that the pills are going to hurt them. They won't take the pills or they take the pills and they're not fixed overnight. So they quit taking the pills or they feel so good on the pills. They're like, I'm fixed and stop taking them. <laughs> That's the other thing. Yeah. Uh, did that. Don't do I that. I got some pills. Uh, I was so afraid of them that I cut them in quarters. Wow. And I would take a quarter of a pill. And when nothing happened, I quit taking them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that goes on all the time. I hear it every day. And unless things change, it's going to be that way. And that is why we do what we do and try to provide as much resources as we can within what we know, like mm -hmm. going on shows and talking about our experiences, writing about our experiences. And, you know, that can be a little bit more accessible to people, especially at the beginning of their journey, perhaps. Um, and so speaking of writing about it, you have a book that we're going to talk about, uh, Teetering on a Tightrope, My Bipolar Journey. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I decided to write it four years ago or so when I was in trauma therapy. Because as I took, and she took me back to day one in my life and went all the way through it. And I realized that I had had so many incidents, good and bad, that I ought to put it down on paper. So I started writing the book. Now, I didn't have to do the research for the book because it was my life. Yeah. So it's not like the way people have to write a normal book where they spend months and months and months uh, researching and writing and all that. I knew it. I just had to put it in order. So I put it in chronological order. I wrote, I left nothing out. I wrote everything that happened to me, sexually, physically, mentally, it's all down in black and white. And um, the book is about 120 pages. When you read it, it's about a three hour read. Um, it's gotten good reviews, but it's tough to sell a book in a small genre like yeah. mental illness. So it's doing okay. But I continue to go on to these shows because trying to get the word out, connecting with people who are the, uh, the hosts of the shows and see if somehow we can't get more knowledge out there about what's going on. Well, this is the perfect show for it then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all we talk about. Um, I love the title that you came up with too, Teetering on a Tightrope. How did you come up with that? Well, uh, my wife actually came up with it. Uh, I talked to her and one of my daughters and Lenny, my wife, 
uh, said, you know, why don't you think about a guy on a tightrope? Because we all know that they kind of go like this and mm -hmm. equate it with balance. And so we came up, she came up with teetering on a tightrope and we have a great cover on the book. And it's because I left it at that title because that's what your life is going to be like when you're bipolar. One yeah. side to the next. There are a lot of good times, but there are a whole hell of a lot of bad times. Yeah, I, I love that title. It fits Thank so you. perfectly. Um, so where do people get a copy of it? They can get it on Amazon. Uh, they can get it on audible.com. It is. Oh, it's on no, Audible. I don't know if it's out yet because it takes longer to do a uh, an audio book. Yes. Because you have to wait for the publishing and all that. Um, I haven't been told if it's out yet. Last week I was told it was coming out this week. But anyway, it's on Audible. It's on ebook, and it's in print. It's a paperback. Uh, it's fourteen ninety five for the book, and I believe seven or eight bucks for the uh, for the ebook. Um, it is. On, I just looked it up. Mobile. There you go. There's your Audible teetering on a tightrope. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's on Audible now. There you go. It's on there. I found it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the book is. Right to the point. Um, not only does it describe my life, it describes a lot of other people's lives just in different ways. Mm -hmm. And the treatments. The, the one thing I found is that the, from what my psychiatrist told me, the medications only work for about 50% of the people. Wow. Um, and the medications are not perfect. One no. may work for one person and not the next. And one may cause severe flu-like symptoms and all that stuff. So you have to keep going through medications and hopefully find a cocktail, a group of medications that will work for you. And that's how it went for me. For the rest of the people who don't get any help from medication, there are... Uh, ways to help themselves, uh, EMDR, CBT, DBT. But most people don't know about them, these helpfulness yes. ways. I think CBT is probably the most well-known one, the cognitive behavioral therapy. I did, um, the first time I went to therapy, I did the DBT, dialectical. Mm -hmm. So awesome. Um, my friend does the EDM, EMDR. She says she loves it. I haven't experienced it, but she says she loves it. So there's, yeah, there's so many different ones out there. And there are also small tools you can use. Uh, breathing exercises. Uh, there's a thing called four by four by four uh, in breathing. It's kind of a breathe in, hold it and then slowly let it out, and it does calm you down. Uh, there are things like spinners that you'll see people using. They usually keep it under the, under the table or between their legs, and they just spin this little wheel all the time. They also make, um, I don't have one on right now, but I do have them, spinning rings. So if you wear rings, you can get one that you can just sit there and spin oh, it. Good. 
Yes. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I and love I've mine. Seen, I've seen people who put a band on their wrist. Yeah. And when they're going through a tough time, they snap it. Mm -hmm. And that seems to help. So there are things you can do on your own that uh, don't involve medications. Uh, there's uh, magnetic, I can't think of what it's called, EMDR, that's what it is. And uh, I have a couple people in my groups are trying ketamine treatments. Okay. And they've gotten good results, although it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. And for one girl who's in my group, she'd been going and getting ketamine treatments and it really worked for her. It didn't work for everybody, but it really worked for her. Two sessions ago when she had it, she went into a psychotic break mm. and was fighting the physically the attendance there. So even though she'd taken it for several years, uh, it can backfire on you. Yeah. And I so, think it's a really good point that one thing might work for one person, but it doesn't work for somebody else. And that's why you got to try different things. Right. For sure. But to underscore everything, there is help out there other than medication. And if you give it a try, it'll help you. And a lot of, ironically, a lot of those methods we've talked about will be covered by insurance. Yes. So. Yeah. Wonderful. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I, we had such a good talk. Um, thank you. Is there any last words of wisdom that you want to share? I mean, you've shared a lot of them, so well, I just like to ask. <laughs> the reason I wrote my book um, was to get the word out there and try to limit the stigma uh, people have. And also the big thing I wrote the book for was to tell people that no matter how long your journey takes, there's good times, there's bad times, and you can eventually conquer it, although you'll never get completely over it, but you can have a good life. Oh, I love that. That's the perfect thing to end on. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. I really I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Everybody go check out Steve Wilson's book, Teetering on a Tightrope, My Bipolar Journey, um, Amazon, Audible, just Go and get it. However you want to listen or read, go do it. As always, thank you so much for the amazing guests that we have on the show. Um, be sure to check out their links down in the description below. If you want to support the channel, go ahead and check out our merch store. We've got some very cool things on there. That's my favorite. Sorry, I'm busy ending the stigma. Um, but there's some other very cool designs. 10% of the proceeds always goes back to the Canadian Mental Health Association. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at RV Media because we have some great new shows coming up and you never want to miss any of those episodes. And remember, the only way to end the stigma of mental health is to speak openly and honestly. Bye!